We're up to mitzvah number 54. Today we're going to cover six interrelated mitzvahs that all relate to the laws of theft. We're going to begin with mitzvah 224, which is called Geneva, which is a kind of theft when it's done surreptitiously. I sneak into your house, I sneak into your bank vault, I sneak into your car, you're sleeping, you're not aware, and I steal in a stealth fashion. The owner is unaware of it. That's Geneva Mitzvah 224. Then we have a very similar mitzvah, 229, which is called Gezel, which is also theft, but it's more robbery. It's more flagrant. It's more brazen. It's done in the open. It's done in, in overt fashion. I come and I, you know, I mug you. I, you, you're aware of it. It's done more directly. That is a second mitzvah. Again, prohibitions against both kinds of theft. We're going to talk about mitzvah number 228, which is not to oppress someone with money, which it's not about extracting money from someone, but harboring money that belongs to someone else against their will. So uh, we'll talk about some of that in a little bit. Mitzvah 522, which is to not encroach upon another person's property. So me and my neighbor, we have a demarcation separating my property from his property. I cannot move those landmarks to enlarge my property and take his. This is a kind of land theft. And then we have mitzvah number 130, to return the stolen item. If I steal something, I should return that item specifically. If the item is not available, I have to return the monetary equivalent. And finally, Mitzvah 54, which is the mitzvah of the adjudication of the thief, meaning that the court is required to adjudicate these laws. Now, just to explain the obvious, the fact that the numbers are not all in the same place is because these numbers are following where they appear in the Torah. And as we know, the Torah sometimes says laws in, in different places, and, and it's not all organized topically, and therefore... Uh, we want to present in a way that seems logical to us, you know, the prohibition against theft, the different kinds of theft, and what happens that what has to happen after some theft has occurred, and finally the general mitzvah on the court to adjudicate these laws. Okay, so let's begin with mitzvah two twenty-four, the mitzvah to not steal in a covert fashion. And now it's important to stress, and we mentioned this in the past, that when it says thou shall not steal. In the Ten Commandments, our sages explain that that is a reference to stealing people. That is a capital offense against kidnapping. And later on in the Torah, in, in, in Vayikra and Leviticus chapter 19, where there's a lot of mitzvahs in quick succession, we have the mitzvah of not to steal. That is a reference to money, monetary theft. So the first interesting question that the sages talk about is what about if someone steals only to tease someone. You know, so someone leaves the room and you grab their laptop or you grab their phone or you grab their pen and they go crazy. Where is it? I left it here. And they'll, I don't know. I don't know. And that's kind of a, a thing that happens. According to most authorities, even though it's just a joke, it's just done in jocular fashion. You're just there to needle and tease the person. That would be a Torah prohibition 
of not stealing lo signovu that you're not allowed to steal someone, even if you have playful intentions that would, according to most opinions, qualify under this mitzvah. Others argue, say, no, it's just a joke, and yes, it's not okay. Maybe it's rabbinically prohibited, but it's not biblically prohibited. It's only biblically prohibited when your intention is to keep it and not when it's playful. But that's, I think, a very interesting law that may be very relevant to people today, even people who are not in the business of theft, they too can maybe encroach upon theft if they do something of this fashion. Some of the other laws, and again, whenever we try to cover a mitzvah, especially we do a whole a whole class of mitzvahs, a whole genre of mitzvahs relating to a very vast subject, we have to realize that there's like books of Talmud and books of Rambam and voluminous commentaries, and we're going to try to give a quick overview, but obviously we can't cover it all uh, with the time allotted because we'll have to be here for months. And uh, we have other stuff to, to 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 cover. So another interesting law we find in the commentaries and in the, in the Talmud is that there is a prohibition against buying from thieves. If someone is a thief and you know for sure that there's a stolen item and they want to sell it to you, they want to pawn it to you, and you know, you know for sure that it's stolen, well, then you're kind of a conspirator in this crime because if they can't sell it to you, then they have no incentive or less incentive to to steal it, and therefore there's actually a prohibition against buying from thieves. There's also a prohibition against buying stolen goods. And then there's a discussion about people that we assume that they're thieves, but we don't know for sure. Someone is a shepherd, and they're being hired by someone who owns a lot of sheep to watch their to watch their sheep. And this person is just you know hired hand, and suddenly they come with bales and bales of wool. We know for sure where they got that wool from. You know, they sheared it off and it doesn't belong to them. So Talmud uses it as an example of someone that we have no evidence directly that they're a thief, but we kind of know the backstory. We could piece it together. We can safely assume that they are a thief and therefore we cannot buy from them. Talmud talks about buying from children. A child shows up with a gold watch and says, hey, I want I want to sell my watch. And you're like, oh, it's probably not theirs. Maybe their parents, maybe they they took him from someone. That would also be prohibited, I guess, you know, unless you know for sure that it's actually theirs. In addition, Talmud talks about what happens if someone says, I want to sell you this thing, but you have to quickly hide it because they don't tell anyone about it, right? Then they're indicating with their behavior that it's stolen goods and that too would require you to withhold from buying it. Now, a question I assume we're going to have is, what about stealing from non-Jews? Are they included? And the answer is, of course, there's a prohibition against stealing from anyone. Now, what happens if someone does steal? And we're able to find them. We catch them red-handed. We discover the item in their home. There's witnesses, things like that. So then the law is that they have to pay back the original owner, but double. So they steal a matter $100, they have to pay $200. They steal $1,000, $2,000. They steal a million dollars, $2 million. Everything is doubled. And the logic behind this is that it's tit for tat. They try to inflict the loss of 100 and therefore when they, when they pay back, they have to pay the original 100 back that belonged to the owner and then they have to add an additional 100 because that's what they wanted to inflict upon the victim. Now, there's an interesting law that the Torah tells us. In the event that they steal an ox or a sheep, then the laws are different. They steal an ox or a sheep, and then they sell it or they slaughter it. So an ox with 1,500 pounds of delicious meat, I see it, I covet it, I steal it. 
I bring it home. I hire my slaughterer. They slaughter it and make steaks out of it. In that instance, I would have to pay not the value of one ox, not even the value of two oxen, but the value of five oxen. Uh, whereas if it's a sheep, then it will be four. That's a law of the Torah. It's a verse in the Torah. This is something we have to understand. Why is there this different law vis-a-vis the ox and the sheep? The, uh, the, the ox you pay five times, the sheep you pay four times, and everything else you pay only two times. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's interesting that this is only – oh, these laws, these punitive penalties are only – in the event of someone being caught, either with witnesses or with evidence and the like. Whereas if someone admits to their crime, so there is a law, if someone admits their guilt in an area of a, of a punitive penalty, in that event, they would not be required to pay that penalty. And that's a law that applies across the board with respect to things that are not monetary payments, but are penalty payments in the event that they admit it, the verse is clear that it's only when the court finds guilt, not when the person themselves admits guilt, then they don't pay that extra law of the penalties. And the logic behind that is that we want people to admit and we want to allow them to save face, so to speak, to repent, to admit, to pay back. And of course, that's behavior we want to encourage and if they're going to anyhow have to pay the extra penalty, that's going to dissuade them from admitting. And therefore, this law, that's the logic behind this particular clause in the law, that when they admit, then they're able to sidestep the penalty. In the event that they can pay, then we learned about this in the, in the past, that this is the one instance where someone can be involuntarily sold as a slave to pay for for the crime. If someone oh, if I owe someone because of an accident, you know, God forbid there's an accident, I got to pay. I don't have insurance. I owe the money. I didn't steal from them. Well, then I I just have an oh, I owe you. I have to pay them back. Whereas if I steal from someone else's property and I don't have the money to pay back, then that would be an instance where someone would be sold to recoup that money. So that is Mitzvah two twenty four. The idea of covert theft two twenty nine. We have overt theft when someone steals by force using using muscle doing it in a public fashion that too is prohibited you cannot snatch something from someone you cannot engage in an act of mudding and the like of course these things are so destructive to society we thankfully live in a world that has some semblance of law and order we don't live in a world in a country controlled by gangs or cartels oh, uh, we don't have anarchy thank god and the Torah, of course, is providing us with the rules of a just and a righteous and functioning society. And one of them is the prohibition against theft, both kinds of theft. And here we learn some more laws that are important for us understanding uh, of these concepts. So first of all, there is a major discussion, and I don't want to just throw this out there. I don't want to get caught up in the details. There's a major discussion about the minimum amount of money that would qualify as a theft. In 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 Torah parlance, there's a concept called a pruta. A pruta is like the equivalent of a penny. It's the smallest denomination of money. And the idea is that if something is less than a pruta, it's not a monetary thing. And the law states what happens when someone steals less than a pruta. 
They steal something which is so insignificant it doesn't have the value of money, even the most, the smallest coin, the smallest denomination. It's a major discussion as to what happens in that case because there was an act of theft, but it wasn't an act of theft of money. And there's many laws and much discussion that uh, encompasses that particular case. Now, the law talks about a very interesting case where, where there's people that you're allowed to kill, people that are guilty of crimes, people that are, are destructive to society, people that are danger to other people. There's a class of people, and that's a separate discussion, that you're allowed to kill. And you may think, hey, if I'm allowed to kill them, certainly I could snatch their wallet, right? It's much less. And it's interesting here that the, the commentaries go out of the way to point out that no, even people you're allowed to kill because of other reasons, you're not allowed to steal from them. And there's a variety of reasons for that, either because it goes to the heirs, alternatively, because the whole concept of taking someone else's money unjustly is something which is so corrosive and destructive and so bad for you, you don't want to be anywhere near it. And even though, yes, this person is really deserving to have their money stolen from them, you shouldn't do it because it's going to corrode your character. Interesting discussion as to returning the item. I steal something or someone steals something. They have to return that very item. So if they steal a phone, they can't say, hey, I'll just – I'll buy you the equivalent. You know, We'll go to the store and buy you the, uh, the iPhone, the same model. No, you have to give me back that particular one. People have a certain affinity for their – Items, they want it, they don't want the money equivalent, you have to give them back that particular item. Now, the Talmud has several chapters dealing with following the following kinds of scenarios. What if someone steals a pillar or column of wood? It's a theft of lumber. Okay, you got to pay back the piece of wood. However, in the interim, they took that column of wood and built it into the foundation of their home. And now their whole house is resting on that particular column of wood. And the the victim is saying, listen, I want that column of wood. Don't go to Home Depot and get me an equivalent. I want that one. And the only way you would get that one is you have to disassemble the whole house. So what's the law in that case? So interestingly, what the, what the law is that indeed the person must disassemble their house and give them that particular pillar of, of wood beam that they stole. However, the rabbis enacted a decree. And of course, the, the, the jurisdiction of that is a separate question, how they're able to do it. But the rabbis enacted a decree saying, no, in such an event where it would be such a cumbersome penalty upon the thief, the repentant thief, he wants to repent, he wants to give back what he stole. But it would be such a penalty upon them that it would discourage them from paying back what they stole in that event, we say, okay, this is a case where they could pay just the money. They don't have to take apart their home. Because again, in the event that they would have to, that would be something that would encourage them to maintain their status as a thief, to not repent. And of course, we want people to repent. What if a thief steals something, they die, their heirs, their estate has to pay it back? And a related question, what happens if someone wants to benefit from a thief? So the thief invites you to their house and they say, hey, come, you can sleep over here in this bed. And you're like, mm, where did this bed come from? Use my bike. Here's my bike. You take it for a ride. Well, I don't know if they bought it. They kind of have a bad reputation. So the law is that it depends. If there's someone that we assume that everything that they own is all acquired via theft, 
then you're prohibited from benefiting from that person. Whereas if we say that, yes, there's a lot of, you know, they have a poor reputation and we know that they have some history, but we know that there's something that they bought, there's some things that they bought legitimately. In that case, unless you know for sure that the item that they want you to benefit from was stolen, you're allowed to benefit from them in general because you could always assume, well, maybe the thing that I'm enjoying was not something that was derived from theft. Okay. Now, the first interesting discussion here uh, comparing these two mitzvos relates upon the following question. When someone steals in a covert, surreptitious fashion, the law is they have to pay back double. And in the event that it was a an ox that they sold or slaughtered, or it was a sheep that they sold or slaughtered, then they have to pay four or five times the amount to the original owner. However, this law does not apply when someone steals overtly, when someone steals flagrantly, when someone confronts their victim and steals from them. And the question the Talmud asks in the book of Bavakama, which is the book that deals with a lot of these laws, page 79b is, why? Why do we treat the covert theft as being worse and being penalized more harshly than the Overt theft, we would think, if you, you know, you and me would think that the person who comes with a gun, puts it to their head and says, give me your money in, in broad daylight, well, that's someone who's a much worse criminal. That's what we would imagine. At least the other one, you know, he had, he burrowed in, he snuck in, he came when the owner wasn't around, yet the laws are the opposite. When someone steals covertly, they pay the penalty two or four or five times, and when someone steals overtly, then they don't have that penalty. So Talmud tells us something very interesting. The students asked Rabbi Yochamad Zankai, why was the Torah more harsh with a ganif, someone who steals covertly, more than a goslin, someone who steals overtly? So he responded to them, this one equated the honor of the, of the servant to the honor of the master. And this one did not equate the honor of the servant to the honor of the master. When someone steals in a surreptitious way, they sneak in. They're scared of the homeowner. Maybe they'll stop me. Maybe they'll think poorly of me. Maybe they'll, they'll confront me. Maybe they'll engage with me violently. But they're ignoring God. In their view, someone who is a person who's the homeowner, that's someone you should be fearful of. Whereas God, well, it's as if God's not watching. And that is much worse than someone who's just straight up a thief. They're, at least they're at least they're not elevating the human above God. And therefore, when someone, when someone does say the human is much more important than God, that is someone who needs to be penalized for that additional crime, so to speak, not just the crime against the victim, but the crime, so to speak, against God. And the Talmud gives an analogy. It's akin to someone who makes a huge party. Two people make huge parties. And one of them doesn't invite anyone. Doesn't invite the townspeople, doesn't invite the king, doesn't invite anyone. Okay, he doesn't want to have any guests by his home, by his party. Whereas his neighbor makes a lavish party and invites the whole town, but doesn't invite the king. Which one of them is a more flagrant violation against the king? You invited everyone, he didn't invite the king? That's bad. Whereas the other guy didn't invite anyone, that's not as bad. Yes, he didn't invite the king, but you know what? At least he didn't exacerbate it by inviting everyone else and excluding the king. And that, and therefore, 
the Ganev is worse than the Goslin. Now, Talmud asked a uh, adjacent question. Why is there a difference between the ox and the sheep? Why, when someone steals the ox and slaughters it or sells it, got to pay five times, whereas when they steal the sheep and slaughters it or sells it, they got to pay only four? Says the Talmud, two answers. First answer is because a sheep is someone that you benefit from, but not from their work. Sheep's not going to schlep the uh, the plow. It'll grow wool. You may be able to slaughter it or give you babies. It's not something which which is working for you, whereas the ox, it's working for you. And therefore, my crime against the victim was not only that I deprived them or I withdrew from them their asset, but also the fact that the ox would have worked for them and therefore the penalty is is greater. That's the first answer. The second answer is a very deep and uh, powerful philosophical insight. The Talmud tells us that when you transport your stolen item, it's very different transporting a sheep than transporting an ox. Sheep is something you've got to carry if you want to hustle out of there with it. Whereas the ox, you can't carry the ox, you have to kind of lead it. And which one of those two is a more degrading experience? Having to carry the animal, it's a more degrading experience. So again, Rabbi Yochum says, look how much the Almighty is worried about the honor of everyone, even the honor of the unrepentant thief, because they had to humiliate themselves by carrying the sheep with their, with their own hands, a small percentage of their penalty is shaved off. They only have to pay four times, not five times. The other one, you know, he led the ox. It's more of a dignified escape from from the homeowner. And therefore, you have to pay the full, full penalty, which is five X, whereas when someone has to humiliate themselves, degrade themselves in their getaway, in their escape, a little bit of the penalty is taken off. Okay, quickly running through the rest of the mitzvahs that we have over here. We have mitzvah 228, which is to not harbor what belongs to others. And that doesn't really matter how you got it. If you have someone else's item or someone else's money just to cause them pain or to tease them or to trick them, if you're not giving it to them, that would be this prohibition. Again, this is not about extracting it, but holding it, harboring it. An example of this is an employer, the employer hires the employee, and the employee, of course, deserves a paycheck. The owner, the employer, has the money, and the money essentially belongs to the employee, but they harbor it themselves. That would be an example of this prohibition. Of course, there is a separate mitzvah of not withholding payment, but this is another example. It's a general category of a prohibition that states that you cannot withhold the money that belongs to others uh, against their will. Now, the Sefer Chinach, he asked the question, you know, these three mitzvos, 224, 228, 29, are very similar. They're about withholding money or extracting money from someone else illegally. Why do we have to have so many mitzvos that relate to this concept? It could have been possible for us to be told, hey, you should never have something that doesn't belong to you. And you would know, don't take something that doesn't belong to you. Don't take it violently. Don't withhold it. You shouldn't have anything that doesn't belong to you. And that would be a mitzvah that would encompass these three different, more slightly different kinds of actions. And he gives several answers. Answer number one is that we should get reward 
for every time we withhold from a mitzvah, we believe that the, we get reward from mitzvahs, but not only when we do positive mitzvahs, also when we withhold from doing negative mitzvahs, from transgressions and prohibitions. And therefore, the more prohibitions there are, the more reward we get from withholding from it. In addition, because this is something which is so important, and this is something that we could potentially violate in all areas of our life, even the things that we don't, you know, we no one thinks of themselves. Most people don't think of themselves as thieves. But, you know, the guy at the cubicle next to me has a pen and I need to sign my name on a check. So I just grab their pen to sign it. So if it's a company pen, it's maybe one thing. But if it's their pen and it's not my pen, I didn't ask them for permission. I'm not going to ask them for permission. I don't know for sure that they allow me to do it. That is theft. Yes, it's a very small amount, but it's still theft. You're taking something that's belonged to you that permission. And this is, again, something that, that we could potentially stumble over many times of our lives. And therefore, it's so important for us to think about it, to learn about it. And therefore, we have many mitzvahs to encourage us to take this law very seriously. Now, again, if you, if you know for sure that they would allow that, it's a, that's not theft at all. Because you know for sure your friends, you've asked them in the past a thousand times, you know, who minds if they use someone else's pen? No one minds that. So that, that would maybe be an exception. But again, supposing that you don't know that, you don't ask, can I borrow or take a paperclip from my neighbor? No, it's his thing and it's not my thing. How can I take it? It's theft. That's, that is theft. Okay, we have three more mitzvahs to cover to round out our, our study of the mitzvah of theft or the mitzvahs related to theft. The next one, 522, talks about stealing land. And that is, I have a, a, a border to me and my, and my neighbor. I could push over the border a little bit, push some rocks from my side to his side, uh, move the markers in a way that it's, it's imperceptible. That has its own mitzvah to not steal land. And the question the commentary is asked is, why do we need to have a separate mitzvah for land theft when it could be included in the generic mitzvahs of, of theft? And the answer that we're given is that because it's so severe that there's a double, a double transgression, so to speak. And this happens often where there's an additional transgression to indicate how, how severe it is, how harsh it is. You're violating not only this prohibition, but also that prohibition. Now there's an interesting little component of this law, and that is to be Guilty of this in a technical sense, it's only when the land theft occurs in Israel. Outside the land of Israel, this land, this particular element of the laws of theft doesn't apply, and it's not so clear as to why. One of the commentaries tells us that we know that every family is apportioned parcel of land in the land of Israel, and that's theirs forever. Even when they sell it, it comes back to them after 50 years, and therefore, that is truly their property, as opposed to, you know, if I have my neighbor, it's possible for me to sell my home or my land to the neighbor, and therefore it could become theirs, and therefore it's not really encroaching my, uh, on my property as much as it would be in Israel. Now, this particular mitzvah has been given new meaning in, in, in the modern economy. Because the Talmud tells us that one component of this mitzvah is to not encroach on someone else's livelihood. So if I have a shoe store on Main Street, and that's how I make my living, can someone else come and open up a competing shoe store right next door? So we know in the Soviet Union that wasn't allowed. In America, 
It's encouraged. Competition makes everything better. What about in Torah law? Is there a problem of someone having a livelihood and someone else swooping in and taking away their livelihood? Is it the equivalent of I have a property, this is my territory, and someone else is coming encroaching upon my territory? So that is a discussion. The exact parameters of this, it's, uh, again, voluminous. But all the modern questions or many of the modern questions that we ask vis-a-vis theft are discussed in relation to this particular mitzvah, like patent law. I have a patent. What do I own? I own some intellectual property. It's not something which is tangible. It's mine, but can someone else steal it? This would be very relevant to that discussion. Copyright law, unfair business competition. The Talmud talks about someone who sets up a fishing operation and you know they have the fish in their particular radius where they're fishing and someone else comes and throws their fishing line right exactly where the other person's fishing. That would be an example of theft. They're not stealing something which is which is already theirs, but something which is bound to be theirs in an instant, and that would would qualify. I think, you know, in, in taxes we always love, like to talk about oil. Can I drill my well, my oil well, right next to someone else's oil well? Can I drill horizontally into there, into the shale or into the rock that is, you know, harboring their oil? Very interesting questions that we could ask about theft in the modern economy, the modern world. That's not just the blatant flagrant stealing, but all these other fuzzy cases that may, that may be different. Another interesting case that is discussed in relation to this mitzvah is what about what about religious theft? Suppose in the in the in the city, there's one big, beautiful, glorious shul. It's the only synagogue in town. Everyone's got to go there. Great. Someone says, you know what? I don't like the rabbi. I don't like his politics. I don't like the the cantor. I don't like some of the people. There's not enough room. I don't like the ventilation. I want to open up my own shul. Is that potentially a problem of encroaching upon? the existing shul. Because just like the Talmud tells us, you can't go and, and, and try to steal someone else's livelihood that would violate this particular law. The rabbi is given a salary and the salary is based upon the membership. Can someone else open up a shul and that may threaten the original rabbi and the original people in the shul, their, their income, it's potentially going to be is going to be harmed by someone else opening a shul. Interesting question. The, there's also a question, you know, if I, if let's say there's someone who is price couching because they're the monopoly, they're the only game in town, and they're the only place you can buy gas or tires or whatever, and that obviously would would be licensed for someone else to open up a competing store because this is not you're taking away someone's livelihood, you're taking away someone's monopoly, and that's a good thing. Uh, whereas it might be slightly different if let's say. You're undercutting the competition. It's a fair, it's a fair store, fair prices, but you just want to fight them for whatever reason. And therefore you'll open up a store, you sell tires for $5 just to get rid of the guy, just to make market share. That might, uh, run into problems with this particular law. Okay. So we also have mitzvah number 130. That's the mitzvah of returning the stolen item. Again, if it's available to return it, if it's intact, you return it. Otherwise you just return the value if it was altered. And then what if it was less than a proof, less than a, than a, the, the minimum denomination, then you don't need to return it. We assume, the Talmud tells us, that people will forgive such a thing. So if, even though it is a violation of, the, of, of a transgression of theft, there is no repayment because it's so insignificant. 
And finally, we have mitzvah number 54, which is the mitzvah on the court to oversee all the laws that relate to a theft. So, of course, we have the law of paying double, paying four or five. There is also a component of this law, which is the thief that burrows in, the home in, home intruder, that the Torah tells us in the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verse 1, that if someone burrows into your home and you shoot them dead, you are not guilty of murder because they come into your home. And just like we have today in, in common law, that someone who is a home intruder, you're, you're allowed to kill them with impunity. That actually is in the Torah as well, that the thief that burrows in and is injured or is killed by the home and true, by the home, by the homeowner who is protecting his family or even his assets, uh, that would absolve them of, of murder or of any crime. In addition, like we mentioned earlier, if someone steals, has to pay back and does not have the money, that would be a case where the court would sell them for the duration of time that would be required to repay the owner. There's an interesting case of what happens when someone steals from the coffers of the temple, how that is adjudicated. Another very interesting case, what if someone commits two crimes simultaneously? And there are crimes of different severities. So the example that is relevant to us, if someone steals from someone else's property, but simultaneously violates the Shabbat, meaning on Shabbat, we're not allowed to take from one domain to another domain. I want to go in someone else's home, and I want to steal their stuff. So I take it from, from their domain to my domain. However, if I just go into their house and I lift something up, by lifting something up in the air above a certain amount, you know, 10 inches or so, well, then I've acquired it, and now I'm a, th- and now, and now I'm a thief. But because I'm still in the homeowner's domain, I have not violated the Shabbat. The Talmud gives a very unusual case as to someone who steals from someone else's home but keeps it lower than 10 inches. They only actually acquire it when they transfer it from the homeowner's domain to the public domain, not by lifting it up in the air, but by transferring it from one domain to another domain. And then the instant that they take it out of the homeowner's domain into the public domain, they have violated both the Shabbat, because they there's no Erev, this is transferred from one domain to another domain, and the violation of stealing. And this triggers a very interesting Talmudic law, and that is... There is a concept called Kim Lebedaramane. When someone does either with one action or at one time two separate transgressions, then the law is that the court only adjudicates the more major transgression. So for example, the case that one of the cases that's given, if someone shoots an arrow and kills someone, obviously that's murder. But before the arrow penetrated the victim's body, it penetrated their garments and it ripped their garments. So when you rip someone's garments, you got to pay them, right? You damage their stuff. So can we go and take the money that is belonging to the victim or to the victim's heirs or estate for the ripped garment? So the idea is, is that because we're dealing with a much more severe, major and harsh crime, the other one is not adjudicated. Now, I want to point out, I have seen and perused a book, yay thick, yay tall, big book, on the subject only of this, as to what happens, it's called Kim Lebed which means we we give him 
the major one, not the minor one. And there's all kinds of ways of understanding it. According to some, when someone has a major penalty or a major punishment, included in that are the minor punishments. Alternatively, there's a second way of viewing this, and that is that when the court is tasked with dealing with adjudication of this particular act of crime, either that happened at this time or happened in this action, well, then they just deal with the with the, with the big ticket items. So if it's a case of murder, yes, there's, of course, a ripped shirt, but you know what? That's not considered insignificant. Violation of Shabbat and theft, the, the, the smaller one is either absorbed or it's ignored by the court. And another component of this discussion is, well, is the person still guilty of the lower offense? Maybe yes. Maybe it's just uh, a requirement in the court to deal with the bigger picture, not with the smaller things. But really, technically, they are guilty of the other smaller crime. And the practical difference with that would be is that, hey, suppose the heirs of the person who was shot and had their shirt or their suit ripped, suppose they walk into the perpetrator's home and grab something. I mean, they're not using a court order to extract the money. But maybe technically it's still, it's still deserving of them. And maybe if they extract it themselves extrajudicially, well, maybe in that case, you wouldn't be able to take away from them. Because after all, that was legally theirs. It's just the court says we only deal with the big picture. Again, some of the other interesting discussions that are raised over here in the event of someone who steals or someone who damages while doing something that is of a much more severe penalty than in certain instances, the lower crime will be absorbed or will be ignored and will focus only on the bigger crime. So those are some of the laws. Again, if it wasn't obvious, let me make it clear. We just gave a small sprinkling, a small sampling of some of the laws. But I think the the lesson, maybe the takeaway lesson for us is we see how important, how severe these laws are and how careful we have to be even in the small parts of our lives to not transgress them. In fact, the commentaries note that if you look at the Yom Kippur prayer, of course, Yom Kippur is the climax of Elul and Rosh Hashanah, the 10 days of repentance. We finally have Yom Kippur. And then even within Yom Kippur, there's all these gradients because we finally have the Ne'ilah, the, the last sealing of the door. What's the last thing that we say in the Ne'ilah prayer is we want to avoid or repent for sins of theft. That's like the last thing that we talk about because it's so important and so severe and it's something that we tend to neglect because we, we, we disregard it, we disregard it or we don't view it as important because after all, we're not real thieves. You know, I'm just borrowing their pen. I'm just taking their stuff, but that's not theft. And therefore, I think it's good for us to be reminded, uh, that it's possible for us to be violating this law in more minor ways, and uh, maybe we should encourage ourselves to think about it more critically and to be more careful with other people's stuff.